Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me, and yay, we're doing something ancient. It's been ages, and I'm so excited. Beth, who have we got on today? So today we're speaking to Islam Issa, who's an Egyptian-British scholar and author, and a professor in the School of English at Birmingham City University. His research has included early modern English literature and the reception of the Renaissance. But today we're very excited to be talking about the city of Alexandria, which he explores in his new book, Alexandria, the city that changed the world. Hello, we haven't had you on for ages. Last time I was here, I was talking about Cleopatra. Yeah, I think, God, it was right at the beginning of us doing our recordings, right? So we're going back in the middle of COVID. It was, yeah, it definitely was during COVID. I remember that vividly. <laughs> oh, my days. It's so nice to get you back on because we've been dying for ancient Egypt for so long. Uh, I don't know what's wrong with your friends, but apparently they just don't want to help us out. So, you know, get 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 the word out. Well, you know what? The Alexandria book starts with the ancient, but somehow it ends up in the present. So it's a really long history. Oh, that's all right. I mean, listen, we talk about Alexandria, we talk about the library, we talk about, I mean, it's in all the, let me put it this way. You struggle to find a book that doesn't somehow mention Alexandria. It is such a important and, do I want to say well-known? Is it that well-known? Well, I mean, it's one of the most important ancient capitals and it was, you know, a regional trade hub and it was the knowledge capital of the world for, for centuries. But at the same time, people tend to go to the Mediterranean and go to Egypt and not end up in Alexandria. Or they might go to other ancient capitals, like Athens, Rome, Istanbul, and not Alexandria. So that that is intriguing. Have you been? Of course. I'm from Alexandria. My parents are my grandparents, great-grandparents. So it's a personal endeavour as well. Oh my days, I, do you know how much cooler this has just become, this podcast? I mean, I thought we were going to do some really awesome history stuff anyway, but now you've got a personal connection, that makes it so much more amazing that we're being able to, and hold on, you've got to tell us a bit about your family, Let's hold on, let, let me stop jumping the gun, you've got to tell us about your family, but we'll do that at the end, but before that, I mean, Alexander the Great doesn't, let me put it this way, Alexandria exists before Alexander the Great, right? So before he arrives, it's still an important city, isn't it? Why is it so important? I mean, it's it's not a city when he arrives. It's a series of fishing villages um, on the Mediterranean coast. And it's an island that's actually uninhabited. 
So the importance that it has isn't so much a result of the people that are there or what's going on there. It's two main things. The first is the location. So this this island and these fishing villages are on the Mediterranean. Um, they've got access to water because they're relatively close to the Nile Delta, but without risk of flooding or the, or drying affecting it. And it's got a lake behind it to the south and the canal network that the ancient Egyptians have built. So that's one part. The other part is it's at the intersection of three continents. So it's North Africa, it's right next to Asia, and it's just across from the um, Mediterranean Europe. So it's at the intersection of three continents. So those are, so that's the importance of Alexandria as a, of, of, that, of those fishing villages and that island as a, as, in terms of location. But then there's also a mythical importance to it. Uh, and that's that the island of Pharos is mentioned in Homer's work, Homer's poetry. And Homer, we tend to think of Homer now as a poet. Uh, at the time, Homer would have been seen as much more than a poet. Homer would have been seen as uh, history, and with the absence of um, one scripture, religious scripture, would have been seen as, as having some theological importance as well. So the fact that in the Odyssey, the island of Pharos is mentioned, and legend has it that Alexander, uh, who was taught by Aristotle, by the way, um, you know, um, loved Homer's poetry, um, that he kept a copy in a golden casket that he put under his pillow before he went to sleep, and that he had a dream in which a venerable man with a white beard, maybe Homer, um, told him about this island where loud the billows roar, and as a result, according to Plutarch, he gets up immediately and goes to this island where he ends up connecting it to those fishing villages on the Mediterranean coast to create the city of Alexandria. Oh my days, I love that. That is so, I'm struggling to find my words of what I'm trying to express here. But yeah. Yeah, anyway. it is It is quite It is quite a, um, a radical vision. Like it is a, building a city from scratch. Um, it, you know, usually cities are created as a result of a war or geographical divisions or expansions, which, which, um, which isn't the case for Alexandria. It's not so organic. He actually has a vision goes and delivers that vision um and 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 it's got two really radical ideas in this part of it one of them is that you if you create a city at the intersection of the continents and you bring people from all different parts of the region to live together in relative harmony which does happen for some time so he invites um greeks uh the egyptians are there Levantines are there. Jews come in big numbers because he offers he offers Jews to live in peace there with the you know to to have to build their synagogues and tax exemptions. They come in big numbers. So if you gather all these people in one place in relative harmony, then they can turn this place into an economic hub, into a trade center, and to some extent that that dream is realized. The second radical dream, I think, is that knowledge is power, um, which which leads to things like the library but we can, we can talk about that um separately perhaps um sorry i'm i'm now I'm just jumping in before beth all the time beth i promise i'll give you a second in a minute coming back to this for everybody and all speaking all people so it's theoretically similar to the idea of panhellenism where even though that's just for all greek-speaking people so for people to be able to share ideas to be able to 
gather together to be able to uh, pray. But this is literally for everybody, everybody under the sun from doesn't matter your religion doesn't matter your race doesn't matter where you're from literally everybody together in one city and live in harmony yeah and, and alexander would have probably been expected to hellenize to uh hellenize rather than harmonize but i think um what he what he does is, is something quite quite radical he, he actually leaves as soon as he finds the place doesn't see a single building go up um in in the city he's he's ever excited for his next adventure and part of what he tries to do with Alexandria is um, be in a strategic location where he can expand eastwards because Alexander does want world domination. So um, he, he he doesn't see it through himself, but certainly the Ptolemies who come after him um, try to to keep up that that uh, that vision. Um, and there's evidence of people coming from all around the region, you know, from from the south, Nubia, even from as far as India. You mentioned before mythology in terms of Alexandria, the city. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about how Alexander the Great tried to kind of tie himself to to previous mythology in kind of showing why he should have his have a rule in Alexandria and Egypt and other areas. How did he kind of try and utilize myths for his own advantage in his image? I mean, the, the simplest thing I can say is that when he arrived in Alexandria, he had styled himself on Achilles. So even his hair with its sort of curly locks. Um, and, uh, and and then he also uh, had a specific sculptor and a specific portrait artist. So uh, he was very conscious of his image of who, who was allowed to portray him um, and the way in which they portrayed him. And often when he was portrayed, he would look like Achilles. And then over time, that kind of uh, subverts um, when people try to um, artists try to depict Achilles, they begin to make him look like Alexander. So, so he has that kind of that kind of influence as well. The other aspect of it isn't just that he tries to tie himself to those who've come before, but he creates his own legend. Um, so during his life, um, it's actually Aristotle's nephew um, who 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 whom he hires as his sort of biographer and and with all his travels he has these biographers with him Ptolemy his friend and general who later takes over Alexandria also writes about uh, Alexander's adventures and we end up with the Alexander romances which are all these um, legendary stories about him that people keep adding to to the extent that even after he dies in Alexandria they start adding to them the Jews of Alexandria add certain stories about him going to Jerusalem when the Muslims arrive they um, they they say that he was mentioned in the Quran, so it's really um, about creating his own legend, um, and to a large extent, he's very successful in that. Right, you've mentioned this, and I think we should continue on with the the story of the the library. First of all, if you Google it, you have the most beautiful. Obviously, you can't get photographs because the photographs didn't exist back then, but you've got the most beautiful artworks paintings of this library my question to you is first of all was this the largest one of the first of its kind is this something that was just so beyond imagination to have such a library created in alexandria and what happened to it you know we go back right to the beginning where legend has it that alexander started scribbling the design of the city into the sand when he arrived and that he included something called the shrine to the muses 
um, which is where we get the word museum from, but also the Shrine to the Muses is this complex that was going to be built that has both uh, a library where the books are held and the museum where research is conducted. Now, the, the library itself, we know that when it's built, there's a letter from, from, from the period, letter Aristeas, which, which um, has the kind of job description, if you like, of, the, um, of Demetrius, who's hired to build the library. Uh, or to, to gather the books and, and his task is to gather all the books in the world. That's, that is the job description. All the books in the world. So it's very much intended to be a repository of all human knowledge up to that period. Um, and to a large extent, um, we can say it's, it is the biggest gathering of books or, or scrolls or human knowledge to that period. We, we've got a, a the second librarian, for example, is quoted to say that there are half a million scrolls. Um, so, so it's a huge quantity, and it includes the entire, for example, corpus of Greek literature. So, yes, th- there was this library that really did try to gather every book in the world from different languages. They 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 went to extreme measures to get these books. You know, they they would uh, borrow them with huge deposits. Uh, from other governments and not return the deposits. If you if your ship docked into the port in Alexandria, it would get searched, not for contraband, but for books. If you had a book, it would be confiscated immediately and taken to the library. And in the library, it would be copied. And in all likelihood, you'd get the copy and they'd keep the original. Um, there, there, there were policies that you couldn't take any originals out of the city as you were leaving. Um, so, so there were policies put in place to ensure that they could meet this goal. I mean, another one is that they, that they banned the export of papyrus so that libraries like in Pergamon can't compete. Um, so, so there is a massive uh, intention here, a clear intention to gather every book in the world. And that's the radical vision that knowledge equals power. The Ptolemies are saying, if we gather all knowledge and then we also research and disseminate the knowledge, then we will have power, a sort of form of soft power. Now, the library itself is likely to have been a really grand design. It would have had columns, large columns inside and outside. There would have been sculptures on every corner. But we we have very limited information about how it looked for certain. Um, but we know it had main halls um, and, and that the ceiling, that the cabinets were ceiling high um, and that the scrolls were all there, you know, like like wooden logs. Um, and, and eventually the, the librarians start to organize them by subject. They attach little labels of clay, uh, to them so they can be identified without being unrolled. Um, they, uh, they eventually catalog and alphabetize, which are things that hadn't been done, uh, before that. So that's an answer to the library and, 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 and what existed there or, uh, and on what the intention was. As for, the demise of the library it's a it's a, it's something that happens over time and actually i think the library is 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 often a kind of symbol for the priorities of a city or the priorities of a government and we see that today as well um and and um over time we 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 have stories about um the shelves being emptier when the when 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 christianity enters um, there's a lot of books uh, destroyed and, and many of these sort of uh, what would have been termed pagan philosophers begin to leave the city and they may have taken books with them. Before that, actually, in, in 44 BC, obviously Julius Caesar um, uh, sets a fire in the city that may have extended, caused some damage. 
to 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 the library. So so it just happens that it's over time really. We've got we've got lootings, we've got earthquakes, tsunamis, changing politics, uh, changing religions until over time there's there's a decline. It's not just one event per se that 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 causes the the downfall of the library. That's really interesting because when you talk to people in general, they're like, oh, so the library was just set on fire and everything was destroyed. That's, that is the myth that you're going to have to battle now because everybody, that's how everybody rolls it. That was it. it. It was completely and utterly destroyed by one fire. All the works of the ancient world disappeared because of that one fire. I mean, that being said, fires were quite common in, in Alexandria. There was a kind of... Um, uh, a mob and uh, the, the population kind of didn't didn't let things um, go differently to how they wanted. They would often, you know, set fires or uh, protest or um, get the ruler and take them to the stadium and sort of behead them. And so, so it was there were there were periods of real unrest in Alexandria. The most famous fire, like you said, is 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 around um, is in the first century BC when Julius Caesar sets sets a fire. And he writes that, you know, his, his biography is quite, autobiography is really interesting. It's in the third person. It's like Caesar did this, Caesar did that. And he does say Caesar set a fire. Um, but he sets it to the to the ships uh, on the harbour. And it may have extended into the library and caused some damage. But what, what it certainly destroyed is, is books that were being held in the kind of overflow. Uh, because they had a kind of overflow of books both in the temples, in the kind of sister library, and in the warehouses around the harbour. Um, so, so it's true that fires, the Julius Caesar's fire may have destroyed books as well. But, but we also know that Mark Antony, for example, gave um, books as a gift to Cleopatra in the library. So, so it would have existed after then. So that fire wouldn't have destroyed it completely, Caesar's fire, but it would have damaged it. It's such a fascinating history just of that that one building and all its repositories. Like we could have done a whole podcast just on the library, but we're going to move on. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what the horror was? Yeah, I mean, I've kind of hinted at this already, but there's lots of horror in the history of Alexandria. I mean, you know, I, I, I discover in a letter that there was cannibalism in the 11th century. But there are there are two primary things that, that I mention in the in the chapter on horror. From the third and fourth centuries, the first is uh, the Roman emperor, emperor uh, Caracalla, who rules from 198 uh, CE, so towards the beginning of the third century. He, he massacres thousands of people, mainly men, in in the city. And the second thing is is the earthquakes that struck the city uh, as well. So those are the two kind of um, key key events in, in that, that part on, on that chapter on horror. Like I said, the Alexandria mob, they, they, they had a lot of success in changing politics uh, in, in, in the city. So if they didn't like one of the rulers, uh, they could protest enough and cause enough havoc for, for that to change. Um, and, and, and with that came the library where they were writing, uh, the museum next to the library where they were writing poetry and, 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 and comedy and so on. So when those two things combined, satire began to, to, to exist in Alexandria. So they really did ridicule that the nicknames they have for, um, for some of the, the Ptolemy rulers, you know, one's the chickpea because his, his head looks like, like a chickpea shape. One is, you know, there are some really rude ones I'm not going to mention. So he, the, 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 they find this Roman emperor 
like a really good um, target for their for their ridicule um, because he he had a really bad relationship with his wife. He killed his brother. Uh, he, um, he he said that he was a new Alexander. Um, he was he was quite tiny, like his stature, and then they they started to to um, call his mother Jocasta, you know, in in reference to Oedipus sleeping with his mum and so on um, in in Greek mythology. So all of this stuff reaches the emperor. Uh, so when he passes through Alexandria in two hundred and fifteen, he essentially uh, gathers all the men. There are two different versions of this in, in the histories. He gathers all of the men, and um, they are all slaughtered. Thousands and thousands of them slaughtered, 25,000 people, and, and throws them into a fire as a result. So, so that's, that's the, you know, one of the most horrific events that takes place in, in Alexandria's history. And um, Caracalla actually gets killed by one of his own soldiers later not not that long later and, and in alexandria they celebrate his death like him at the time it was a sort of anniversary of his death was a celebration um the other sort of big moment of horror was in 365 so uh fourth century when um a tsunami took place so a huge a sort of an earthquake um and then suddenly um the tsunami there were from the eyewitness reports um, there's one Roman historian who is who is who's an eyewitness um, called Ammianus who writes about boats being stuck on the on the roofs of houses and and uh, people being immediately drowned, neighbouring villages just being wiped off the map, um, and also the farmland becoming um, just too salty to, to 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 work anymore. So that so big damage to the to the farmland as well. So those are two of many horrific um, events that happened, but those are the two that, that, that really strike us from the third and fourth centuries. We're going to jump a little bit forward in time because obviously we'd love to sit and talk with you for hours, <laughs> but we also want people to come and read your book. So we're going to be jumping a little bit here, but eventually Alexandria comes under the control, well, under Islamic control, doesn't it? What happens under Islamic control? Yeah, so... Uh, Alexandria is also a, a huge hub for, for Christian theology um, for large periods as well. What essentially, what, what the the idea is that Alexandria is a kind of liberal city where, as we've mentioned, people could sort of be themselves. That was the idea, and that's why the Jews went there, and that's why the Christians went there um, in a period where Christianity wasn't wasn't as strong. As for the the Muslims, it's it's slightly different. Um, it's not so much to escape oppression; it's more it's more to expand. It's not well known actually that that the the person who led the Muslim army into Egypt, Amr ibn al-As, went to Alexandria uh, while he was before he before he was a Muslim on a trade trip, and that Muhammad, the, the, the Muslim prophet, prophesies that Egypt will become a Muslim nation. And, and he's very interested in Egypt. He sends letters to which we still have access. He sends letters to, to the prefect or the high priest of Egypt. He's usually assumed to be Pope Cyrus, but he's probably Pope George I. And uh, they exchange very respectful letters. And the Pope sends him a, um, several presents from Alexandria. Um, including a beautiful woman called Maria the Copt, whom, whom uh, Muhammad weds. 
So there, there is an interest in, in Egypt uh, as, as, the, as the Muslims expand. Eventually, the Muslim army digs trenches on the city's outskirts um, and, and they attack the, the Roman or Byzantine army unexpectedly. And, and the histories don't really tell us how that worked, that strategy, but they tell us that it worked, that the, dig, that the trenches being dug did work um, and that they took Alexandria, the, the Arabs took Alexandria um, to end seven centuries of Roman rule. And, and what happens then in, in it's, this is uh, 600, the year 642, so we're talking almost a thousand years after its founding, um, is that for the first time, Alexandria is no longer the capital. So Muslims um, who, who, who take Egypt are a bit wary of Alexandria because it's um, on the sea uh, and that they, they're, they're more interested in land. Um, they're from the Arabian Peninsula. So for them, the desert makes more sense than the, than the ocean. Um, and, and the second thing is it's a very diverse city. So that, that, that's quite confusing for them. They're, they're not used to this kind of diversity. So they found a new capital, which is Fustat, which is now old Cairo. So Alexandria is a capital uh, for a good millennium, uh, but 973 years, to be precise, after its founding, um, it becomes uh, a Muslim city that's, that's no longer the capital. And we're going to jump forward again in the kind of whistle-stop tour of Alexandria, um, a bit further into the medieval era. And we, we have to mention the Crusades, which... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A huge part of uh, medieval history in, um, in Europe and, and the wider globe. How would you describe how Alexandria's fortunes fared during the Crusades? I mean, I imagine with different Crusades, there's kind of varying varying events and, and different things going on. But um, yeah, how would you kind of tell us about that? Yeah, I, I mean, to summarise, I think for long periods, it's used as a defence fort against the Crusades because it's got naval presence. So yeah, I think for a long period, it's a defence uh, fort. Sorry. Um, but we do know that, you know, um, during different Crusades, there are attacks on Egypt. They're often unsuccessful. So King Amalric, Jerusalem, um, gets quite close to Alexandria that the Egyptians open up the Nile down and um, and stop the advance, for example. Um, the, the, one of the really important moments is in 1166 in Alexandria uh, when when the the um, um, Crusaders arrive, and we've got a good account of that, a clear account of that from the chronicler William of Tyre, um, 
but he, he, his his emphasis is interesting because he writes about how the crusaders basically uh, cut the trees, cut the orchard, the, the orchards, and 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 that was a sad moment for the Alexandrians in the, in the 12th century, especially as in Islamic belief, then they're they're not allowed to harm trees during war. Um, but you know, um, William of Tyre writes that they they leveled. The the, the the leveled the orchards to the ground and that they were doing it for the sole purpose of just um, um, uh, I think he writes causing injury and loss it, it wasn't it wasn't tactical it was sort of um, to affect the morale and um, this event I think tips the balance in in 1166 because people realize in Alexandria that the Crusaders are um, bad news when they when they do that to the trees <laughs> and um, the Alexandrians joined forces with the Seljuks, who are led by Saladin. So Saladin um, is, is is the one who, who leads that, um, and um, eventually Saladin, uh, Saladin's uncle, puts him in charge of Egypt um, and in, in, as, as governor. So later, I think, talking of Saladin, was, uh, when Saladin in 1187, there's a really his famous um, uh, attack in, in, in Jerusalem. Um, What's not well known is that the Crusader trips then turn to Alexandria and that the Alexandrians then start to throw, and they still find them today, sculptures and random blocks of pillars and columns and stuff onto the seashore so that the Crusaders can't get any closer to Alexandria. Um, and throughout all of this, there's something important to mention, which is throughout all of the Crusades, Jews move in big numbers to Alexandria um, to seek refuge, uh, even you know, no matter what, what who the attacks from. When the Crusaders attacked um, the Jews, the Jews moved to Alexandria because it was safe for them. When Saladin took over Jerusalem, Jews moved to Alexandria because it was safer to them. Um, so that's another consequence of the Crusades: is that the Jewish population was was um, really rife in Alexandria. Like I said, and Beth said, we're jumping in time a little bit. I mean, recently we did a podcast on the Ottoman Empire. I don't know if you can do one podcast on the Ottoman Empire. You'd probably need about 65 because it's so vast and covers such a wide time period. But Alexandria gets taken over by the Ottomans for a few centuries. Do they improve things after the Crusades? It's almost no surprise, isn't it? You, you, you can see all these consequential empires through the history of Alexandria. The history of Alexandria is a history of so many different groups and empires because it's such an attractive location. Um, so uh, as far as the Ottomans go from the 15th to the 18th centuries, those are probably the quietest centuries in Alexandria's history, because uh, the Ottomans don't prioritise Alexandria for large periods of that time. They make quite drastic changes to the trade routes um, and to the immigration patterns. They've got other cities that they're prioritising uh, in the region that are not Alexandria. Um, as far as the actual city is concerned, they, um, the causeway that Alexander had built between um, the, the, that barren island and the Mediterranean coast, they expand that. And that's something that still exists today. They expand that and basically move the, the, um, the city into that, that area. Um, but the, the population really declines because there are other more attractive places to live with better employment opportunities than, than Alexandria. And also, it combines with a time when Vasco da Gama found a different route around around Africa. 
to to Asia. So um, that that kind of Cape route where where you go around Africa into 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 Asia. So the fact that the Europeans were beginning to um, have their own empires and find different trade routes meant that Alexandria's importance in linking east and west began to diminish. Um, so, so really, it lost its monopoly on things that it had, like the spice trade, um, and and uh, and and it, and it began a kind of a decline that that we one could argue it's never recovered from uh, as a result of the Ottoman period. And we're going to jump forward again to um, Napoleon. And um, having watched the film a couple of weeks ago, all I have in my mind when I think of Napoleon in Egypt now is him firing at pyramids. So. Yes, <laughs> but we're going to think about what, what he was actually, the real history of Napoleon and Egypt. How did Napoleon Bonaparte fit into Alexandria's story specifically? He did fire at the Eliyahu Hanavi synagogue in Alexandria. So, so the synagogue is destroyed by Napoleon's army. Um, but so not, the pyramids. not the pyramids. Um, not the like pyramids. Like in the film. <laughs> Not the pyramids. I mean, until today, people often uh, ask whether the Sphinx, the Sphinx's nose, was destroyed by Napoleon. But again, that that's the that's a, a legend. So, but that he did destroy the synagogue. So, so in in Alexandria, and that and that's an interesting um, uh, fact because he admired Alexander the Great. And I think that's an interesting entrance into this this story of Napoleon is that he really did want to emulate Alexander in some ways. He was obsessed with him. Um, and, and if you look at his his um, the kind of the kinds of things he says while he's in exile later in his career, he says things like in his life. Sorry, he says things like Alexandria would have been a better city than Rome, Constantinople, Paris, London, and Amsterdam. Um, he says it would have been and was meant to be the head of the universe. Um, so he saw huge potential in its location, and, and he says other things like Europe is a molehill. Um, tiny Europe has n- not enough to offer, so he he really thinks that Alexandria could be the answer to his Alexander-like quest for world domination. So he he he's got these ambitions, he's got these delusions, much like Alexander. He 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 arrives in Egypt and he he tells his troops that they're about to enter an historic city, um, and that he wants to be greeted as a liberator in the same way that Alexander was greeted because Alexander had got rid of the Persians in Egypt who weren't very popular. Now, as Napoleon enters Alexandria, uh, a bullet shaves his left leg. So he, he's, he, that, that's his welcome to Alexandria. Um, and um, he, he, he asks his troops to respect the, the mosques and places of worship. Uh, but like I said, ironically, uh, they blow up the Eliyahu um, Hanabi Synagogue um, because they want to erect a, a fort in its place. So before even setting foot, foot in the city that his hero founded, he'd already destroyed and damaged um, the important parts of it. He's obviously ends up fighting against the, the Ottomans and the British, and that culminates in the Battle of Alexandria in, in 1801, and, and the capitulation of Alexandria is signed by by the British and the and the French, um, and that gives the British control of of the city. So he's ultimately unsuccessful in his in his quest to keep Egypt or keep Alexandria. It does have an influence on lots of 
a lot of the culture of the city in the sense that they, they found these obelisks. It's quite funny. They find, found these obelisks that were transferred from Heliopolis Temple to Alexandria um, in the year 13. So this was when Octavian took Alexandria from from um, Cleopatra, the last Cleopatra, the seventh. He transferred these two, two huge 15th century BC obelisks from a temple in Heliopolis to Alexandria and erected them in front of the Caesarium. And the Caesarium was built in honor of Caesar by Cleopatra and finished by Octavian. So these two big obelisks are then named Cleopatra's Needles by the French, even though they have absolutely nothing to do with Cleopatra. And obviously one of them ends up in London and the other ends up in New York. Um, and uh, they still have that name, Cleopatra's Needles. So that's something that happens during Napoleon's time. Okay, moving on to, well, you just mentioned my next question, really, which was the British now have Alexandria. Do they do a better job than the Ottomans, the Crusaders? God, I'm losing how many people have occupied the city now, but previous occupiers, do they do a better job? I mean, it's... it's um... It's a time when the city has some importance. Again, you know, they, they, they do take Egypt, but they, they also place British troops there. And, and that in itself was, was quite curious to the, to the people of Alexandria. Why that, why are there thousands of British troops placed here? And they also, for large periods, put an Ottoman in charge, sort of a, 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 a ruler. A kind of puppet leader, essentially, um, and they lend a lot of money to those um, uh, Ottoman rulers or the rulers that that, that that are there. So, so Egypt starts to stack up a lot of debt, and then we realise why the British kept their troops there uh, when the, when the world wars begin, because. It's a great location in which to have your troops, and Egypt plays a role in, in, in the world wars. And the Suez Canal is perhaps another thing we should mention that, that links east and west again, which is initially going to be built by the French, and to a large extent the British oppose it um, because they think it would give um, the French an advantage over them. So there's a period where they really try to put their focus on on the keeping and and, maintain, and uh, taking control of, of the Suez Canal. So, yeah, um, there are British warships in, in Alexandria, British troops. Uh, there's a heavy shelling or, or, uh, of, of Alexandria that, that almost destroys much of it um, as well in, 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 in the uh, 19th century as well uh, by the British. So it's a fluctuating period, but essentially it's important for British um global politics that they're there. And you've mentioned the World Wars and the Suez Canal, and, and these will be familiar to um, to some listeners for particular events in the 20th century, um, the repercussions of the First World War and the kind of rise of independence protests and revolutions in particular parts of the globe, including Egypt, of course. How, I mean, how important was Alexandria um, during particular kind of key events of the 20th century, such as that kind of mission for independence and then later we have the the Suez Canal crisis what kind of would you would you pick out i guess even in a couple of minutes for um for the 20th century as key alexandria moments yeah there are there are lots i mean it's a city that 
that that just has one event after another. Um, the 1919 revolution is essential. It's an independence movement that centers in Alexandria uh, and results in, in independence from from Britain. Um, uh, so in 1922, Egyptian independence is declared and it shifts the country from a protectorate of Britain to to a kingdom. Britain still kind of de facto controls it, but that was a really important moment. It was also an important moment in terms of the Egyptian suffragette movement. Um, so, so the 1919 revolution is really tied in with with lots of um, uh, women's women's movements as well. You know, you also have the 1952 revolution, which centres around Alexandria, in which um, uh, the, um, the the army generals and the most famous of them is Nasser Gamal Abdel Nasser, um, Nasser, who's from Alexandria, uh, who who whose father was my uh, great grandfather's postman, which is which is why that chapter is called the Postman's Son. He um, essentially leads a, a a coup against the monarchy, and from Alexandria, the king Farouk is forced to flee, and he leaves the palace in Alexandria um, uh, onto his his famous yacht, and and Egypt is no longer a monarchy and becomes a republic. So that's in the fifties. There's the '73 war with Israel, um, which which you know my parents vividly remember as well. So that that was there was a lot there in Alexandria, and then like you've mentioned that the World Wars, you know, um, the First World War, there's uh, has consequences on the city. So again, the 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 Jews who are not Ottoman citizens move to Alexandria during that period. Um, in the Second World War. You know, with with uh, the, the the challenges that the Jews are facing, then they're rejected by many places like the U.S., um, but they are welcomed in Alexandria. So there's there's that aspect. I mean, it's kind of links to the previous question, but the British never leave between the two wars, and that and that becomes clear why as well, why so many warships remained in Alexandria between World War One and World War Two, because overnight in World War Two, Alexandria becomes the British Navy's largest base on the Mediterranean, um, and, and um, Britain swiftly pours troops into 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 Alexandria, and 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 I think it's an unacknowledged sacrifice today, actually, that over one and a half million Egyptians were conscripted into the war effort for the Allies. It's probably something that most people don't recognise. Um, so there were more than a million Egyptian soldiers in World War Two. And half a million peasants became laborers in what was known as the Egyptian Expeditionary Force. Um, so I think that's that's also a, um, an unacknowledged aspect of, of Alexandria's history. You just inspired me. We now need to find a historian that worked on that time period in Egypt because that story deserves to be told. Because we don't talk. There's there's so many aspects of history we just don't talk about. We're so Europe centric. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I mean, in in Alexandria now there's the, the Hadra Cemetery, that H A D R A. The Hadra Cemetery has uh, first and second World War graves. Thousands of thousands of people buried there. Uh, just to finish off, tell us a little bit about your family because I'm, I'm really intrigued. I need to know more because you mentioned it at the beginning. And how far back can you trace your family from Alexandria? Well, I begin the book by saying that I'm the hundredth generation of Alexandrian now, or, or the hundredth generation can call themselves by that name. Uh, based on how long the city has existed. I also say that I tried to find Ancestor the Great. So not Alexander the Great, Ancestor the Great. 
and and in a way, I, I mean, I failed because I mean, it's very hard in in Egypt to find you know written records. It's it's not quite the same as national archives. They're they're both more poorly preserved and harder to access. Um, so you know, I couldn't really find um, the, 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 that ancestor, the great. However, I you know, I uh, I did do a few things. You know, I got my 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 dad to do an ancestry test just to for the sake of it. I thought, you know, are we going to have a really interesting you know, mix of all these different groups that lived in Alexandria. And and it came back 97.5 Alexandria, which was intriguing. So I'm not oh, sure wow. quite what that means, but it, but he was happy. And, you know, when I was there and doing my research in the archives and stuff, I also sort of went to family members that I wouldn't ordinarily have gone to, you know, like great aunts, husband or people like that who, who can tell me about, about the family history. Um, and I think the kind of unsung hero of the book is actually my my late granddad who um, makes appearances because I think I you know I'm I'm constantly intrigued to think what would what would he have made of all these changes happening to his city um, you know he's born in 1910 so he lived through all that stuff that we've just mentioned and and you know sometimes I have to speculate about what he would have thought and sometimes there are little signs about what he would have thought. I love that. I think that's a perfect ending to this podcast. Islam, you are awesome as always. Thank you so much. Remind our listeners before you go the name of your book. It's called Alexandria. Alexandria, the city that changed the world. Fabulous. We'll get that into our bookshop and we will also make sure that you get a slice of the money. We get a teeny tiny slice of the money and the man who has a company named after the rainforest doesn't get the largest slice of the money. So it will be amazing to be able to see your book come out a little bit more. You need to come back because I think we need to delve into some of these aspects a little bit more. And I've now been inspired to learn a bit more about Egypt, especially outside of ancient Egypt, because that's all people focus on when they talk about Egypt. So thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, I think every chapter of this book could have its own podcast episode, couldn't it? And don't tempt me. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. It's been a pleasure to chat. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.